It's giving us a real-time picture of the real world. The dirty little secret of most science is that it gives a little snapshot of a tiny piece, but doesn't tell us very much about the real condition of the real world at large. And so AI is now making it possible not just to monitor the real-time condition of Earth and the environmental systems of Earth, the water systems, the air systems, all of those systems that make up uh, the Earth's biology and ecology, but it's also making it possible, and this is really the big deal, to manage and dramatically reduce the impacts of human activity in the environment. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Can the use of advanced data analytics powered by artificial intelligence and machine learning help mankind to address climate change in an intelligent way? Joining me here is Gordon Feller, a regular contributor to Smart Industry. Gordon, when we first discussed the story, it seemed we were talking mainly about the environment. But since you started researching, the topic seems to have ballooned and now includes stuff like energy, food, shelter, education, and even playing. How come? One reason this has changed is that AI is evolving and the technology that enables AI to have its impacts in all of the sectors that you've described has, I guess, revealed that AI is not one of these verticals like energy, food, shelter, transport, but it's a horizontal that cuts across all of them and affects everything and everyone disrupting the way we do things in all of these discrete sectors and segments of our lives. And that's one reason why we can still say AI has uh, the potential to be transformational because it's cutting across all of these different domains and enabling things to happen in each of them that really weren't possible before artificial intelligence became commercially available and not just a you know, a, a tool for intelligence agencies and military organizations, which is primarily where it's lived until recently. So that's the change, is that it's now commercially available, it's now relatively inexpensive, and it's now having an impact across all of these different verticals. So you could say that it cuts across everything. Okay. Let's start, though, with the original subject we talked about, namely global warming, warming and the environment. What impact can IoT have here? The impact that IoT is already having, and of course will have maybe on an accelerated or expanded basis, is that it's giving us a real-time picture of the real world. The dirty little secret of most science is that it gives a little snapshot of a tiny piece, but doesn't tell us very much about the real condition of the real world at large. And so AI is now making it possible not just to monitor the real-time condition of Earth and the environmental systems of Earth, the water systems, the air systems, all of those systems that make up uh, the Earth's biology and ecology, but it's also making it possible, and this is really the big deal, to 
manage and dramatically reduce the impacts of human activity in the environment because we have an accurate picture that helps us to stop guessing about what our impacts are. And we're able to get an actual snapshot using artificial intelligence to sense and take that data that the sensors are capturing and make sense of it. And that means ultimately we can choose the best interventions because we're able to assess which ones are actually in the real world having the desired effect, for instance, of reducing our impact on air quality or reducing our human impact on water quality or on water availability or on any other type of pollutant. So that's kind of dull, the idea that monitoring real time provides an accurate picture and then allows us to choose interventions that are most effective, but it actually is the key that we have been missing until AI came along. Mm -hmm. Maybe um, that will help us to uh, convince the climate change deniers. Oh, of course, because I think if you have a real-time picture of the real world that's trustworthy uh, and that can actually deliver a visual snapshot of air quality in your city or on the globe as a whole, and you can show what happens during a pandemic when there's a dramatic decline in the movement of people and goods, and you have suddenly a dramatic decline in the total volume of air pollutants, whether it's carbon or methane or PM or any of the others, NOx or SOx or any of the other air pollutants, suddenly it's no longer an ideological question because artificial intelligence is allowing you to deliver a real-time picture of that domain, whether it's my city, my country, my planet. Well, I can think of a few people who still will need some convincing, but that be as it may. Uh, technologies such as artificial intelligence and blockchain or additive manufacturing, commonly known as 3D printing, are mainly seen as profit engines. How can they contribute to sustainability and resource efficiency? Method of three R's, they call it, reduce, reuse, recycle. And the physical limits of growth, in other words, there's only so much stuff in the world that can be taken out of the ground and then used for production of X, whether it's homes or cars or computers or food. The Japanese model, of course, people on an island with a very dense um, uh, population of 250 million plus are the kind of leaders in this in this world of sustainable use of resources to make highly efficient production and recycling and reuse of those objects. And so the circular economy uh, is essentially only possible because it's powered by new ways of doing things with the stuff that we have become familiar with for millennia. And better use of that stuff, more efficient, that produces less waste, that's designed to meet a particular need at a particular moment, which is what a 3D printer allows you to do in your location without shipping uh, and the cost of fuel and all of the other um, you know, expenditures that are involved in moving from farm to factory to ultimate consumer. That's the potential when you have new technology, AI and machine learning you know, being essentially the invisible part of that and 3D printers being the visible part of it. 
Before Corona put a stop to such gatherings, the German government organized an international symposium on digitalization and sustainability. One big topic under discussion was how resilient infrastructures can help promote both sustainable industrialization and innovation. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? It does if we don't look at the key word there when they say resilient infrastructure promoting sustainable industrialization. The key word is infrastructure. So do we have the foundational framework, whether it's our roads and transport system or our grids and energy systems or any other systems that have to be at the rock bottom foundation for that sustainable industrialization. So if those infrastructures are resilient, that is, can they adapt to change? Can they respond to crisis? Can the infrastructure, you know, be performing better under stress rather than what's usually the case, worse under stress. Digitization is the key to that kind of resiliency for a transport system because you can't expect the movement of goods or people to improve simply because we have better metal boxes with rubber wheels that have better engines that burn fuel better. There has to be something else, another ingredient, which in this case is software, that makes it possible for that hardware to deliver a better outcome. In this case, get me to my destination on time, on budget, and with a lower impact on the environment or the lower impact on my own budget. So that's, um, you know, that's the kind of possibility that now is possible that wasn't possible before because you have the digitization overlay. That is, the software is now being overlaid on top of the hardware, the hardware in this case being the energy grid and the road system and other transport assets. That's what makes sustainable business, sustainable industrialization possible. I think that's probably what the German conference in Cologne was driving at. Well, for energy, stuff like heating and electricity, it seems pretty clear that intelligent technologies like smart grids and microgrids will have a major impact. But what else can we expect over the next, say, five to 10 years? Well, certainly one of the things we can expect is a lower cost of doing what we have been accustomed to do at higher cost. The The goal here by investors at least, and I think it's also true of uh, not just private sector investors, but governments who are investing taxpayer dollars, is they want greater benefits. They want better outcomes, not just lower cost, not just higher efficiency, but they want these systems that are being powered by new technology to perform in response to human needs. So that means changing the way we do everything. So in your car or in on your bicycle, if you're looking for a place to park, ideally free, uh, because you prefer when you're moving around to have lower cost, um, but you want to be as close as possible to your destination. Uh, we now have artificial intelligence powered and machine learning powered apps that make it possible to find that parking spot, which is the lowest cost closest to your destination. Unless you want to take a walk from a beautiful neighborhood to your destination, in which case you're not going to park as close as you can to your appointment. So the point is that the whole purpose of this exercise is for human activity to become lower cost, lower negative impact, 
and higher efficiency with the ultimate outcome being that you reduce the friction involved in maybe getting from here to there. And that that's the promise. And of course, we are in early days, so we don't know if the promise is going to be realized fully or not. You even go so far as to say that AI will help us to better satisfy our basic physical needs like nourishment and shelter. Uh, could you explain? Well, think about what we've been doing for millions of years as you know, Homo sapiens, and before that, Homo erectus and Homo neanderthalus. You know, these food and shelter needs that we have have been satisfied by strictly material inputs. And we haven't had much more than the sun and the rain and the soil to make available the material assets that we needed to do the food and shelter uh, need satisfaction. Now, suddenly, we have intelligence in the form of software, which makes it possible to extend our learning. You know, the human brain uh, for millions of years has been learning. And so we've made more efficient shelters. We've, uh, we've produced food more efficiently, but suddenly we've accelerated that capacity by having these software tools that made the process of growing or of building much more efficient and better suited to the task at hand. Now, the digits um, injected into the process make it possible to have much more knowledge, not just from my own brain, but the brain of millions of other people, and much more insight beyond my own insights, and now the insights of millions of other people dead and alive, to insert that with the help of digital tools into the equation of growing food, or making shelter, or keeping my shelter dry, or keeping my shelter warm. And so that's where the accelerated evolutionary impact of software is showing up is I'm able to multiply myself times millions because the inputs of millions of people and their actions and their insights are being incorporated into the artificial intelligence and into the machine learning. And that's the why the word machine learning is important because the thing that makes us different from other creatures is our ability not just to learn because monkeys can also learn and worms can learn, but we have the ability to rapidly learn and accelerate the learning process, accelerating essentially the evolution that normally took millennia and centuries. We now can accelerate that to weeks or days. In the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the fact that AI will change just about everything, including the way we play. I'm really curious to know how the artificial intelligence will change the world of entertainment. Could you go into that? Yeah, I'm here sitting in Silicon Valley and um, I, I landed here in 1983. And one of the things that's happened in technology companies, not just here locally, but all over the world, is that employers, particularly the smart employers who are looking for breakthroughs, have learned from social science and from their own experience that recreation, leisure, and the learning that comes from it and the engagement with others who are not necessarily just like you can actually create breakthroughs or at least create the conditions for breakthrough. And at a minimum, even if you're not getting breakthroughs, improves the productivity of the people who have just had or are currently having a recreation, leisure, entertainment, learning experience, particularly one that engages with others and not just yourself. So this kind of, um, you know, Silicon Valley 
magic trick, which is make for fun and make workplace fun possible and make it fun to engage with people who are not like you and surround you with people who also are having fun in a entertain, work, play, learn environment that mixes it all together. You know, this is something which now technology companies have not only adopted as a basic rule of of work life, but also have started to apply when their technology is being brought to the world of entertainment. So it's not just, you know, online multi-user gaming or any of the other cool ways that we can use screens to engage each other, but you know, we're now with virtual reality goggles and augmented reality goggles, doing things um, with our virtual environment and playing with others that are not necessarily right in our physical proximity. That's opening up whole new vistas for not just learning, but for business, for government, for all the things that play makes possible. And, um, you know, the old adage that uh, if Johnny doesn't have playtime, he gets boring. Uh, you know, this is something which is true of life in general. And maybe we need to uh, have, you know, some rules of thumb that say, if you don't have X percent of your life in play mode, we know you're not learning. So we're going to encourage and create conditions for you to play for that much of your life. That reminds me of a visit I paid a couple of years ago to the Googleplex in Zurich in Switzerland. And there was a guy uh, sitting in the lobby playing the cello. And he was actually playing in a string quartet with two guys from California and one from New York, and they were connected by the internet. Um, I always thought that was a very funny, fun way to, to work. This is, by the way, a technology which George Lucas used very effectively. Uh, the guy at Lucasfilm um, or Lucas Studios uh, and his ILM division who developed this and actually won an Emmy Award for his, uh, maybe, oh no, it was an Oscar for his technology innovation, allowed um, Frank Sinatra before he died to have a remote uh, studio session with Bono. Look mm -hmm. it up. It's fascinating. Um, finally, talking about saving the world, right now, corona seems to be our main concern. Do you personally think the scare will have a positive effect? The air in our big cities has never been cleaner. Most people are working and learning from home. Um, we're flying less. We're driving less. Will some of these changes maybe be permanent? I think they will be permanent, and I hope they will be permanent. Let me start by my hope. Why I think they probably will be is the human tendency to not want to go back once you've seen or glimpsed the promised land. So, you know, that was that was what Moses kept telling people is once you see uh, what's over the mountain uh, from the mountaintop, once you see what's possible, uh, you know, that changes everything uh, because your horizons have shifted, your, your hope has increased and deepened. So I think the genie is out of the bottle for people, whether it's work from home or any of the other new realities that people are experiencing, telework, telemedicine, telelearning, uh, all of those digitally enabled uh, possibilities that were, you know, reserved for the few has now been experienced by the many. Um, certainly telemedicine, telework, telelearning are not easy, particularly when you're doing something new and the technology is still catching up with the demand. Uh, but, you know, the internet is performing pretty well, uh, partly because it was designed in the very early days in the 60s 
to withstand a nuclear attack. So we're 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 testing the limits of the internet's capacity to respond to a you know a spike in demand, and so far so good. But I think you know if the genie is really out of the bottle, people will resist the idea that we go back to what was. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with our listeners. Um, Gordon's article entitled uh, "How AI Will Save the World" is going to be featured in the next edition of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Uh, enjoy. Thanks very much. We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. If you need an industrial IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Just two years ago, Don Tapscott wrote a blockbuster called Blockchain Revolution, How the Technology Behind Bitcoin is Changing Money, Business, and the World. Alan Earls, who recently wrote an article about blockchain for our magazine entitled Internet Unchained, is with me now. Alan, is this all just another hype or should we all be excited about blockchain? That's a real good question. Tim? I think there's an awful lot of hype, but I think there's some very, very interesting underlying uh, reality to blockchain. I'm not alone in describing it as a distributed ledger. I guess that's the technical term for it. So think of that ledger concept, which normally represents something very centralized. Um, but now it's a shared thing cryptographically. So blockchain can be used for maintaining permanent and tamper-proof records of transaction data across a wide area or across multiple functions, which is very new and very different. And of course, the so-called so uh, cryptocurrencies or digital currencies are an application of blockchain. So it's clearly able to do some very new things. Whether they're going to be really useful or not is a question. And I think some things will be very useful and practical with blockchain. Mm -hmm. Well, excuse me, but, you know, ledgers seem to me to be something that will only excite uh, bookkeepers. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's perhaps it's not the sexiest concept, but the notion of being able to keep records and keep everything to one version of truth, which has been a mantra in IT for decades, um, is pretty powerful. Um, when, it, when that's really an immutable truth, it's not relative. At least that's the hope. But Tapscott in his book wrote about uh, creating a network of trust. Of course, trust wasn't originally built into the Internet, was it? No, hardly. Uh, the Internet's pretty porous and, as we've discovered in the age of cybercrime, very, very exploitable. So, um, indeed, blockchain cryptography may have a role in some kinds of cybersecurity uh, that's been being explored. I'm not too sure what the outcome has been so far. Uh, a lot of blockchain also comes with a significant amount of overhead. 
mathematics implies lots of processing power. I think there have been some improvements in that, but some blockchain-based activities have been pretty compute-intensive and a little troublesome as a result. Well, if I understand the whole concept correctly, it is sort of, you know, we all are keeping records and nobody can change the record without everyone else noticing. If I have a record of, of payments that were made and someone tries to subtract money from this system, everyone will immediately notice. Is that, in a layman's terms, what it is all about? Exactly. And that has uh, obvious direct implications when you have a real currency or a traditional currency or, or a digital currency. But it also has implications in other areas. I know um, one of the most interesting to me potential or actual applications of blockchain is in supply chain applications. For example, there was a test use involving people who, that handled diamonds in Europe and wanted to ensure that their supply chain did not include so-called blood diamonds, diamonds acquired through violence and extortion and so on in Africa. Um, so blockchain provided a much higher level of certainty that in point of fact, diamonds from point X were diamonds from point X that eventually got to point A in Europe uh, and that they weren't, that other kinds of products weren't inserted in the supply chain along the way. And the same kind of thing could apply very, very well with uh, pharmaceuticals, for example, ensuring that, that a worldwide supply chain is dealing with actual, well-manufactured pharmaceuticals and not knock off dangerous counterfeits. I'm uh, reminded of a con conversation I had with a specialized lubricant company that has had a big problem with people either copying their product directly or worse, imitating their product with a cheaper grade material. So customers in Asia, for example, might think they're using a very high quality lubricant for specialized refrigeration equipment. Their equipment fails and they blame this lubricant company. In point of fact, they were dealing with a counterfeit product. They're a perfect example of a company that could use something like blockchain to make their supply chain more airtight and certain. I understand that automated SLA management, service level agreement, seems to be an area lots of people are very excited about right now. In your article, you write, by using so-called smart contracts across a blockchain, uh, participants in a business relationship can be confident that SLAs are continuously monitored and that rewards and penalties are immediately and fairly applied. So is cheating impossible? No, I'm sure it's not impossible. People are too smart for that. There's always a way to game any system, I think. Maybe not just because of problems of blockchain itself, but because of all the other things that are around blockchain that could allow people to cheat. However, I think the, the mantra that quality folks have used for a long time, namely, you can't control what you can't measure, applies here. If there's a, a quantity or a quality that can be measured, then that's something that's susceptible, particularly susceptible to control by blockchain. Aspects of a process or anything that are not thoroughly measured and controlled are less susceptible to control by blockchain in my view. So service level agreements that are unambiguous are probably could be measured and controlled with the help of blockchain and enforced. Other things that might be a little more vague and not, not so much. And that gets into the question of uh, the smart contract idea, which is a, a nice slogan. But if you talk to lawyers, they'll say, uh-uh, contracts are very complicated, human-oriented instruments, sometimes with, with ambiguity thereby 
intent and sometimes by accident. And um, blockchain is not good for dealing with ambiguity. It could be used and probably will be used to ensure ongoing um, activities under a contract, but it won't replace the contract itself. It will probably be a referenced activity or report reporting mechanism. In your article, you quote Eric Krause, a consultant for Infosys, a global IT service company, who believes the blockchain market is currently in a, quote, advanced pilot state. He told you... With regard to R3 and Hyperledger, we already see collaboration, so we might see some attempts at standardization over the next few years. In my opinion, this will be one of the pillars for mass adoption. Does that mean we should still be careful and maybe wait until the early adopters have had their fingers burnt? I would be a waiter. But again, I think this is an important technology that in some situations and in some fields and industries may be a game changer. I think it's something that needs to be on people's uh, radar screens and they need to think about its potential transformative powers. But I think for most organizations, it will probably be a little bit more of a wait and see in the near term. But there definitely are areas where I think it can be transformative and very powerful and people should be well aware of its potential. Of course, it's always the second mouse that gets the cheese. <laughs> exactly. Finally, Alan, blockchain has the potential to replace trust between humans with something carried out by a machine based on incorruptible mathematical concepts. True or false? I will have to say yes, because it's both true and false. Um, I think it's not going to replace trust between human beings. It can supplement that. There's an aphorism in American English anyway, uh, good fences make good neighbors. And I think uh, blockchain is part of that picture. It can help to enforce agreements, ensure that people are operating from the same data. And to that extent, it certainly will um, obviate the need for human trust to be applied to every single thing, but the overarching importance of human trust, of course, will never go away as long as humans are, are operating on the planet. Well, we shall see what remains when the dust clears and the hype uh, is over. Alan Earls, thank you very much for sharing your insights with our listeners, and we'll see you next time. Great. Thanks, Tim. And now, one more thing. Call them smart hard hats. Realware, a global leader in hands-free head-mounted tablets, has announced a series of headsets complete with Microsoft Teams functionality that allow industrial workers to use both hands for complex tasks while remotely collaborating with subject matter experts from around the world. First-line workers often are required to work in dangerous environments where the use of both hands is critical for safety and effectiveness. These workers increasingly require access to a screen to gather information or to collaborate. The new intelligent hard hat includes a built-in camera, an interface display, and voice activation, which allows industrial workers to communicate with project managers on the go, as well as provide them with a real-time video feed of what they are seeing to ensure safety and best practice. Integrating Microsoft Teams with Realware's hand-free connected worker platform brings added safety to workers, said Emma Williams, Corporate Vice President Modern Workplace Transformation at Microsoft. Teams on Realware, 
has the potential to reduce downtime as well as dependence on handheld devices in dangerous working environments. That was We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.